What securities laws should qualified opportunity fund issuers be aware of before they start raising capital from investors? And what are the major differences between the different types of private placement offerings? Find out next. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast, the weekly show where we interview Opportunity Zones professionals and experts from fund managers to tax advisors, from real estate developers to venture capitalists. If it impacts Opportunity Zones or the Opportunity Funds industry, we cover it here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Atkinson. What are some of the main securities law considerations for Opportunity Zone investors? Joining me today to tackle this issue is corporate and securities attorney Clem Turner. Clem joins us today from his home office in New York City. Clem, thanks for taking the time to be with us today. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Jimmy. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, looking forward to having you here as well, Clem. I know uh, we've been trying to get you on the podcast for quite some time, so uh, very excited to have you here today. So, you know, today... We're going to focus on securities law. I'm excited about that. It's not the most exciting topic, but I'm excited about it because I've had over 100 episodes of this podcast, and we haven't ever had an episode that's going to be focused on securities law like this one will be. So, Clem, to start us off, talk to us about when do qualified opportunity funds start becoming subject to securities laws? Are, are all QOFs subject to securities laws or only, or only some? Maybe you can go into that for us a little bit. I'd be, I'd be happy to. Um, the rule of thumb is very simple. Anytime you raise money from investors by selling equity, you are subject to the United States securities laws. So any QOF out there, a uh, qualified opportunity fund that's, that's raising capital and, and selling you know, stock, LLC interest, membership units, partnership units, what have you, uh, you're going to be, um, you know, within the jurisdiction of the SEC, and and we've got to follow their rules and make sure you raise your capital uh, in a compliant manner. Right. Now that makes sense. So if I'm doing a small self-funded deal and just getting a a uh, a, a very simple QOF set up, I don't necessarily need to register as a security or, or file for an exemption from, from SEC registration. Is that right? But, but once I start raising capital from outside investors, uh, what about friends and family? If I'm, just, if I'm sourcing capital from, from close friends and family, how, when, when exactly do I need to start worrying about SEC rules? Well, we could take a quick second and kind of go into why these matter, uh, and then I can answer that uh, a little bit better. The securities laws are always applicable. They always govern your raise. However, the SEC really isn't going to concern itself, you know, with your $300,000 raise, you know, amongst, you know, your aunts, uncles, and cousins and friends. They could, but let's be realistic. They have limited resources, and in all likelihood, they're, they're probably not going to. However, the securities laws give your investors a private mechanism for which to sue you if you have done an offering in a non-compliant manner and for whatever reason they want to sue you. So if you're doing a small friends and family round and the likelihood of any of those people suing you is low, then companies do very much take shortcuts with respect to the rules. But obviously, as your raise gets bigger, 
And as you expand your universe of investors to people that you don't know, you really want to be 100% compliant because, you know, even though the SEC may not care about your raise, should anything go wrong with your raise, whether it had something to do with you or not, you know, a, a hurricane knocks down the foundations and, you know, the, the project shot. If you've violated securities laws, those investors have a way to come after you in federal court. And, you know, it's strict liability, meaning, you know, there's no, hey, but I was a good guy defense. You know, there's no, it wasn't my fault defense. If they can prove that it, that the raise wasn't compliant, then they'll be able to get their money back. Uh, and so, you know, it's a sliding scale analysis as to, you know, the level of risk that you want to undergo as an issuer doing a raise. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. So certainly if you're raising money from outside investors that you don't know particularly well, or uh, you've only met once or twice, definitely you're going to want to adhere to securities laws as best as you can, as best as your budget will allow. Uh, but yeah, again, if you're just doing a, a, a simpler raise, you're still subject to the securities laws, but you might need to be a little bit less worried about them, depending on how well you know uh, your investors, or especially if it's just you doing the raise, you don't really need to worry about it too much at all, I suppose. So Clem, I do want to dive into the different types of offerings or, or SEC exemptions. Uh, but you know, before we continue, maybe we could get a little bit more background on you, Clem. I know you're a corporate and securities attorney at CSG. Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, how you got to where you are today and, and what some of your areas of specialty are. Sure, sure. I'd be happy to. I've been a practicing lawyer for almost 25 years now. Out of law school, I went to a family firm known as Skadnart, uh, Slate, Mar, and Flom, uh, which for those of you who know the firm, you know, it's, a, it's a, a pretty big family. You know, that's one of the largest firms in the country. Uh, very well thought of corporate firm. Um, and that was where I learned the securities laws and, and, you know, was kind of educated into the practice of how to be a securities lawyer. Um, I went to another big law firm uh, that, that was primarily based out in California that, that subsequently went under. But my initial education as a securities lawyer in big law firms was, was uh, six years. And... After that, I, would, I, I worked at some smaller firms, and now I find myself at a very well-respected regional firm called Chiesa Shahinian and John Tomasi, uh, which we refer to as CSG, uh, which is based in New Jersey. Uh, I'm in their New York office. Uh, they have several New Jersey offices and uh, clientele primarily in the Northeast area, although I have Opportunity Zone clients, uh, you know, in California, you know, New Mexico, uh, and, and, you know, across the United States. Just to give you a little bit more background about me, I lead the Alternative Capital Group at CSG. Alternative Capital serves as um, a catch-all for capital raising activities that are not your straight traditional private equity offerings. So I do a lot of offshore foreign immigration investment work. Um, I do opportunity zone investment work. Uh, I've done new market tax credit work and any kind of quirky federal program that helps 
investors raise capital by giving your investors some benefit, that's a program of interest for me that we can help issuers navigate as they seek to get investors through those, you know, respective programs. Ah, terrific. Yeah. Any, anything that has a little bit of quirkiness to it, Clem, you're the guy, it sounds like at CSG. That's yeah, great. Yeah, absolutely. Good. And uh, there's certainly a lot of quirkiness to opportunity zones and qualified opportunity funds, uh, particularly since they're such a new investment vehicle. And the the we just had final regs issued less than a year ago. So I know a lot of people still trying to figure it out. Um, and, you know, today we're going to be talking a lot more about how securities laws can affect qualified opportunity funds. So let's dive in now, Clem, into the different types of exemptions from SEC registration or different, the different types of offerings that, that you're going to see among qualified opportunity funds. Can, can you walk us through each one? And, and just so I can kind of paint a roadmap for our listeners, we're going to be talking about Reg D, both Rule 506B and 506C. We'll, we'll touch briefly on Reg A+, Reg CF, and then we'll also uh, discuss Rule 4.2 a little bit as well. But first, let's start with Reg D, uh, Rule 506B and 506C. Uh, Clem, take it away. Just kind of dive, dive into all the different types of exemptions for us, if you don't mind. Glad you asked that question. Let's, let's chat for a bit as to why these things are even called exemptions, because I think it would be helpful to realize how important it is that you comply with an exemption. The reason they're called exemptions is because the securities laws require anybody raising money through an equity security to register with the I, with the SEC. And SEC registration is essentially conducting an IPO, which I'm sure your audience is familiar with, uh, an initial public offering. Those are incredibly expensive and um, very time-consuming processes. But the SEC recognizing this made certain specific exemptions that if issuers followed, they would be able to raise money with equity and not necessarily need to go through the IPO process. One such exemption is Regulation D, which is the private placement exemption. And these are all about the mechanics of fundraising. There really isn't any, anything substantive with respect to any of these exemptions. But if you are following Regulation D, then the one truism, whether you're using 506B or 506C, is that your investors have to be accredited. In 506B, you can rely on your investors filling out a questionnaire and self-certifying by checking the appropriate box. Um, you know, yes, I have net worth of over a million dollars, which is one of the criteria. You know, or they check the box, you know, I have annual income of $200,000 or more, or household income of $300,000 or more. You know, those are the two uh, ways in which individuals um, have been able to qualify to be an accredited investor for years. Um, if you are using 506C, the self-certification is not going to work. Your investors... Uh, must have an independent third party verify that they're an accredited investor. However, to make up for that added bit of compliance, the SEC will allow you to advertise your raise to the general public if you use 506C. So 506C is, in a nutshell, is one of the easiest ways that you can engage in crowd financing 
because you can go out to the crowd, you can go out via website, but, you know, you could also do radio, TV, billboards, whatever, you know, newspaper, whatever works. Any form of mass advertising will be compliant under Reg D506C so long as every investor who invests has either an accountant, a financial planner, a broker, a lawyer, some professional uh, examine your finances and say, yes, this investor is accredited. That's the very basics on 506B and C. So that's Reg D. And just to reiterate, all of those, those two different types of exemptions under Reg D, whether it's 506B or 506C, all of the investors need to be accredited. Uh, And there's some differences between the two, which I want to dive back into in a minute. I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, Clem, that the vast majority of qualified opportunity funds are going to file for the Reg D exemption under either Rule 506B or 506C. Is that correct? That is correct. But there are a few other types of exemptions that I want you to go over for our listeners uh, before we dive further into Reg D. So can you go over Reg A plus and Reg CF now too? Certainly. Reg A plus and Reg CF allow issuers. And just to be clear, I think I've used the word issuer a couple of times. That's an entity that's going to be issuing securities in exchange for money. So that's you know, the entity that's actually raising the money using the securities laws. Just so you understand what I mean there. And for our case, we're talking about qualified opportunity funds would be the issuer, right? Exactly right. Exactly right. So the issuer or the qualified opportunity fund, if they were interested in selling equity to investors who were not accredited, then the securities laws give them essentially two ways to do that. Regulation A+, which is a very heavily regulated process, and you know, the SEC winds up in Reg A+, the SEC you know, reviews uh, your disclosure document, which, which we'll get into later. There are significant requirements on issuers, such as you know, they, they have to have audited financial statements. The disclosures that they have to give are, are specifically delineated in the Regulation A+, regulations. And a raise under Reg A+, is significantly more expensive than a raise under Regulation D due to the added disclosure requirements as well as, you know, accounting requirements, um, as well as there, there may even be ongoing reporting requirements. Uh, with, respect, with respect to Reg A+, the benefit of which is that you can now sell to unaccredited investors, but, uh, but you know, ultimately the issue is whether that's worth it. And, and, and I'll, I'll pause there and talk about Reg CF. Reg CF is a little bit easier to navigate from a compliance perspective. However, it's a little bit easier to, na- to navigate, but it does also allow you to raise money from unaccredited investors. However, the amount of money that you can raise from a non-accredited person is significantly limited. Um, I think it caps out at $2,500, but, but there are certain percentages of net uh, worth or annual income that, that an investor can't invest beyond that certain threshold. So in an offering where you're looking to raise several million dollars, 
you would need a considerable amount of unaccredited investors under Reg CF, given the thresholds and limits uh, that are applicable to how much any one investor can give to any one fund. And ultimately, when you step back and look at Reg A plus or Reg CF, you have to ask yourself as a fund manager, how many unaccredited people out there do I think even have capital gains that would enable them to take advantage of this program? And if you would imagine that number is small, th then it likewise follows that the pool of unaccredited investors interested in making investments in opportunity funds is probably a small one. And so, you know, it's probably not worth the extra compliance to have your offering be suitable for unaccredited investor participation. Right, which is why most issuers will just rule out those two types of exemptions, Reg A plus and Reg CF, and the vast majority of qualified opportunity fund issuers are filing exemptions under Reg D. I was just saying, yeah, Reg D is much simpler to use than Reg A plus or Reg CF, and Absolutely. and doesn't require any involvement with the SEC, either beforehand or afterwards, you know, approving disclosure documents and what have you. Right. So it makes a lot more sense if you're not going after unaccredited investors anyway. Uh, as you rightly point out, most unaccredited investors wouldn't be able to take advantage of a lot of the tax incentives of this program because you have to have uh, substantial capital gains in order to qualify for the, for, the, for the tax benefits or really to take advantage of any of the tax benefits. So that makes perfect sense. And then there's also Rule 4.2, which we haven't touched on yet. Uh, can you can you touch on that briefly and, and, and what that means and, and when a qualified opportunity fund issuer may opt to adhere to Rule 4.2 versus filing a Reg D exemption? Sure. R rule 4.2 is the original language that created the concept of a private placement, you know, being exempt from registration. It, it, it was in the original language, you know, going back to 1933. Uh, you know, if an offering is private and and not, you know, and and not an offering that that is being made to the public, then the SEC has said, okay, you know, you don't necessarily have to go by all the registration requirements in Section Five. And forgive me for being practical, Section Five is where the requirements for an IPO are laid out. But what happened was, you know, it's very difficult to actually know what a private what what does it mean to say that, you know, an offering was done privately. And, you know, for 40 years, there was some confusion as people kind of tried to figure it out. And then what happened was they codified Regulation D and said, look, if you meet these requirements that we're laying out here in Regulation D, then your offering will be considered a private placement. And that's why sometimes you call Reg D referred to as the safe harbor you know, if you sail your ship into the harbor that is Regulation D, your offering is safe. But let's imagine a scenario where an issuer has a core of, you know, half a dozen or a dozen investors. Uh, let's say it's a real estate developer. They've been doing projects together for years, and they're getting a new project together. They submit a request for capital, capital comes in, they pool it in an entity, and otherwise are compliant with other securities laws and are compliant with, with the Opportunity Zone rules. 
that developer hasn't necessarily submitted investor questionnaires to all these people. They're pretty confident they're accredited investors, but you know they don't have the backup questionnaire to rely on. Clearly, they didn't independently verify their third-party status, so they have technically failed to meet the requirements of Regulation D, yet there is a pre-existing business relationship, and it's clear that in all essence, this was a private offering. Rule 4.2 is going to cover them and give them something to argue if they have an issue later. So, you know, rule 4.2 is kind of like the, the, the poor man's reg D. You have raised money through a convention and you believe you did not submit the offering to the public. You know, you believe that you conducted what was essentially a private offering, but you have technically not complied with reg D. You can still argue that you didn't commit a securities law violation because you were consistent with rule 4.2. That makes perfect sense. The poor man's Reg D or, or Reg, Reg, Reg D Reg D light, maybe. Yeah, that makes sense. So Reg, Reg D, more defensible, but Rule 4.2, uh, a lot easier just to get up and running, particularly if you, you have some experience with the, with the investors uh, in your entity. I, I suppose that might, that might be the way to go. Yeah. And, and let's be clear, just a quick, a quick aside. As a lawyer, you know, I'm never going to advise you to rely on 4.2. I'm going to say, look, you know, you know these guys, just send them the questionnaire. You know, why, why create an issue? But usually these things kind of come up after the fact. And 4.2 is a way to cure an offering where you didn't necessarily meet the requirements of Reg D, you know, but still you don't think you, you breached securities laws. So I'm just saying as an attorney, you know, I, I, give it, I give it to the public so that they're aware of it. So that, but as an attorney... It's always worth just getting the questionnaire. As an attorney, you're going to say, hey, let's, let's do this right. Let's do a Reg D. Yeah, exactly. Makes sense. Makes sense. So we're talking about securities laws and how they intersect with qualified opportunity funds. So far today, we've talked largely about the mechanics and the process of the raise. The other consideration is the substance of the raise. I want to get into that in a minute because that deals with private placement memoranda and all of the issues that that surround that topic but first i want to go back to reg d and really break down again some of the differences between 506b versus 506c you explained the differences between the two but what are some of the pros and cons to doing each one if if i'm one of your clients and i'm about to issue uh my own qualified opportunity fund you know, what are the considerations that I am going to take into account when deciding whether or not to do a 506B versus 506C? Uh, It's a great question. And it is where I spend most of my time educating clients because, you know, as we said, for obvious reasons, A plus and CF, you know, are, are, are usually not going to be the preferred exemption going forward. So as I said earlier, the difference between B and C is that 506C enables you to do a general solicitation. It enables you to advertise. So if you don't have a core stable of investors, uh, but, but you do believe that you have a project that interesting, socially conscious investors are going to, um, uh, you know, are going to want to hear about, uh, then... 506C gives you the ability 
to target those people through advertising. Maybe it's Facebook advertising. You know, maybe it's not expensive, you know, radio or television um, advertising, but you certainly can can advertise online and through social media. Maybe it's advertising. Sorry, I got to get in. I got to get in a plug here. Maybe it's advertising on Opportunity DB as well, right? Absolutely. And I think to the extent you offer that service, which is great, definitely, uh, you know, a great source of information, you know, in my humble opinion, but, in, but, but issuers, you know, funds who are taking advantage of, you know, the reach of Opportunity DB in order to get the name of the fund out there should definitely consider what they're doing and whether they really need to be compliant with the rules for 506C. You know, for example, you know, any kind of an email blast to a list that they don't have a pre-existing relationship with, you know, would technically fall under, well, not even technically, you know, would fall under a general solicitation, webinars, even, even just a listing on your site in an advertising manner, you know, in a manner designed to solicit potential investors, you know, like a banner ad, for example. You know, that would be something that, that would be deemed as advertising and, you know, a, a fund could find itself in hot water if uh, they didn't abide by the requirements of 506C. You know, now having said that, I don't think that merely being listed on a database, you know, with, with a bunch of other funds, you know, without any other solicitation of information, you know, would rise to the level of advertisement. You know, but certainly to the extent you are doing an advertisement, to the extent you are doing an advertisement or you are doing a general solicitation, you should make sure you do the extra step of verifying the accredited status of your investors, which frankly is not expensive and not particularly time consuming. There are third party services out there that will verify the accredited status of your investor you know, for something in the neighborhood of 50 bucks an investor. So it's something you can contract out. It's not expensive at all. And if you're unsure if whatever activity you're doing could cross the threshold of advertising, you know, versus, you know, just say a database listing, you know, but, but if, you're, if you're unsure what you're doing crosses into the threshold and becomes advertising, you know, just do the verification so, you know, so you can sleep at night. Right. That makes perfect sense, Clem. So, and, and thanks for the advice there um, that, that for, for, for me and for, you know, any potential advertisers, you are definitely going to want to be complying with the rule 506C type exemption. What are some of the, so, so 506C will allow you to do general solicitation or advertising what about 506B? What are some of the benefits to to choosing that type of exemption? Why would you why would anybody want a 506B as opposed to a 506C? When when would that come in handy? Uh, well, the advantage to 506B versus 506C is that it's one less layer of red tape. So whereas 506C requires this independent verification of of, of accredited status, 506B allows the investor to just check a box on a written questionnaire or a digital questionnaire if, if you know if you have that set up if you set it up through a website and you know people do that with uh uh you know people are able to do that with technology these days but the investor self certifies 
you know, whether, whether they do that in writing or whether they do that digitally, they are checking a box and saying, you know, I meet the accredited investor test via this category. And, and we can talk about some of the categories later uh, because there actually have been some changes to the accredited, the accredited investor rule, but let's not do that right now. So for 506B, everything is internal between the investor and the fund. So the investor self-certifies and the fund is entitled to rely on that. And this is particularly useful with investors who may have issues with sharing their financial information with independent third parties. You know, because 506C requires this independent verification, the, the independent verifier has to see the evidence that you're presenting for how you qualify. So, you know, maybe that's a pay stub, you know, maybe that's a brokerage statement showing, you know, your net worth at a certain level, you know, wh whatever that is, it is. And um, while certain third-party verification services have set up mechanics where they give the investor a number and it's blind and they do their best to make it as confidential as possible, the investor still fundamentally has to share the information. So if an, if an investor is unwilling to do that for whatever reason, you're not going to be able to take advantage of 506C, and so you're firmly in 506B. Also, again, going back to my early example as to when you might use 4.2, if you have a dedicated body of investors as a real estate developer, and you know this team of 12 people have backed your last 10 projects, and you don't need to go into the world to solicit investment, then you may as well just do 506B, have everybody check the right boxes, and, and move on. Um, you know, the, the protections that 50C affords you in doing a general solicitation just aren't necessary. Okay, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, that, that, that's actually very helpful. I feel like I have a much firmer grasp on all of this now than I did a few minutes ago. So thank you, Clem. I hope, I hope it's been useful for our, our listeners also. I do as well. So let, let's talk about what it means to be accredited. I think, I think most of our audience uh, knows the, the basics of it, but maybe you can kind of walk us through that, a little refresher course from those who, who, who already know and, and uh, a little crash course for those who don't know, what is an accredited investor exactly? What are the eligibility criteria? And I know that the SEC earlier this year, I think just uh, a month or so ago, recently amended that criteria and widened the net, so to speak. Uh, yeah, they'd lessened the restrictions. They widened the the eligible pool of investors. Could you, uh, could you walk us through through all that, please? Sure. So uh, I'll, I'll do that in two stages. First, I'll talk about the old rules and, you know, what, what an accredited investor was, and then I'll talk about what the SEC did to broaden that, that, that pool. So originally, an individual accredited investor was somebody who either had $1 million of net worth, not including their primary residence, or had $200,000 of annual income individually or within a household uh, where the annual income was 300000 And for a business entity, like a corporation or, or, uh, or, or an LLC or what have you, the 
business entity had to have total assets in excess of $5 million, right? Um, and then there was also a lesser known one that, you know, directors and officers of the issuer uh, would also deem to be accredited investors. So what the new rules did was add a new category that enabled somebody to qualify as an accredited investor based on their knowledge and not on their net worth. So if you're an individual and you don't meet those that, that monetary threshold, but you were sophisticated with respect to investment or, you know, or finance or what have you, the SEC said that you would be able to get a certain professional certification or a certain designation and even contemplated there being certifying institutions out there created at some point in the future that could give you a course and you could pass it uh, or give you a test and you could pass it and, and you would you would then be considered an accredited investor. And initially, the SEC, you know, pursuant to this expansion, has said that anybody who has a, um, a Series 7 securities license, you know, or a Series 65 or a Series 82, and just generally, let me just take a step back from the numbers. Those licenses are required to sell securities. So, so for example, somebody that has a Series 7 um, has passed a test given by the SEC that deals all about offerings and both private offerings and public offerings. So, so uh, they're, to the extent they passed, they had certified knowledge about the workings of, uh, of public and private equity. So somebody with that license is now uh, a, an accredited investor, and it's likely that any kind of certifying body that would pop up in the future to give investors a class to enable them to become accredited you know, would probably have to, I would imagine, would probably have to have a curriculum that was similar to what the Series 7 was. Um, so at any rate, uh, you can qualify because of your education or sophistication. They also expanded the rule that related to directors and, ex and executive officers in a fund and said, look, if you're a knowledgeable employee of the fund, you know, you're an accredited investor. They also... Uh, expanded it to include family offices, uh, and, and really, I mean, I think everybody assumed that they were accredited, but now, you know, there's codified language that gives us comfort that they are. And in, you know, true 2020 fashion, the original rule that said $300,000 of household income, I believe the rule said uh, income with the investor and their spouse that equals $300,000. And I think the new rule said spouse or spousal equivalent, you know, in this, in this age of, you know, of, of diversity and inclusion. Um, so I just kind of, I, I gave you the highlights. You know, there was also, there's other language in there that I think is less applicable. So I would urge people to, to take a look at the new rule uh, if they have any questions about it. I can also, if you're interested, Jimmy, I did a client alert on this uh, last month. I'd be happy to forward it to you, and you could have a link to it if you'd like. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'll, I'll link to the I'll link to the new SEC rule, and I'll link to your client alert as well, Clem, in the in the show notes for today's episode. So if you're listening out there right now, uh, you know, head over to opportunitydb.com/podcast, and you can find 
uh, links to to these resources uh, on the show notes page for today's episode with Clem Turner. Sure. Yeah. And and you know I think my client alert is a little bit clearer than than you know the SEC's new codified language. Uh, but you know hey, some people want to get their news straight from you know straight from the horse's mouth. But uh, I am more than happy for folks to you know kind of get my summary of what the new rules are and what impacts they may have. Right. No, that makes sense. So if you want to get straight from the horse's mouth, you know, I'll link to the SEC on the show notes page where they have it. But if you want to read it in English, Clem's got a great summary of it. And I'll, I'll link to that as well. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. I, I, I know you couldn't say, say it, but I, I was happy wanna, to. Right. As a securities lawyer, I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to insult how the SEC may or may not phrase things. <laughs> uh, no, I gotcha. I gotcha. Okay. So, Let's stop talking about the mechanics and process of the raise as it relates to private equity fundraising, or in particular, what we're talking about today is qualified opportunity fund uh, fundraising. Let's get into, Clem, now the substance of the raise. And uh, I know we've been going on for a while here, and we actually are going to wrap up the episode pretty shortly here, because I think this is a little bit of a shorter section of the podcast, but I did want to talk a little bit about the substance of the raise and how security law gets touched in that regard. Can can you go into the specifics on on what else qualified opportunity funds need to take into consideration so so they adhere to security laws? Yes, absolutely. From a substantive perspective, you can't lie. Okay, thanks. Have a good night, everybody. <laughs> but but seriously, to expound on that. You have something called anti-fraud obligations in connection with the securities raise. Um, and it goes beyond actually not lying to, to really um, not committing fraud. And you could say, what's the difference? Well, the difference is you can commit fraud by omission. So you cannot say things that you should, uh, which is just as much a violation of securities laws uh, as as the things that you actually say. So you have to, as an issuer, you know, as a fund, you have to tell prospective investors every material fact in connection with the investment opportunity with no material omissions. Said another way, you have to provide all of the information that a reasonably prudent investor would consider when making their investment decision. So if there is a potential conflict of interest that you don't want to disclose because you feel like it might impact the investor's decision, because you fear it might impact the investor's decision, then you, by, ne by, by necessity, then you, by rule, have to disclose that thing. So you've got to disclose, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and the extent you hide something from investors about your raise, then, then you've committed a securities law violation. And, you know, that's one thing that securities lawyers do that, that, that we don't talk much about, but the process of meeting that anti-fraud liability, you know, we, we do a considerable amount of due diligence. You know, we look at your project, we, we look at all the moving parts, and we help you to identify things that you may not necessarily want to disclose, but need to disclose 
in order to remain compliant. And the real issue, like going back to what I think we said at the top of the podcast, to the extent you don't disclose it and some bad thing happens to the project that may or may not have, have had not anything to do, may or may not have had anything to do with this fact you didn't disclose. Just something happened with respect to the project, you know, like a natural disaster. The fact that there was a material uh, fact that wasn't disclosed gives your investors the right to sue you in federal court and get their money back regardless of whether that thing actually played into the downfall of the investment. So, you know, I, I, I had this conversation with clients. I, I know you want to put your best foot forward. I get it. You know, we're raising money. It's a tough environment. But a lot of investors, I think, appreciate honesty, and I think it gives them confidence and comfort in the managers if they see a particular issue that, that might not necessarily be the best, but they see it brought up in disclosure documents and then address that I think gives investors a lot more confidence than if they stumble upon something themselves uh, and it wasn't disclosed. And certainly if they invest and then they stumble upon it, you know, you've just given them the right to sue you and get every cent of their investment back. So, you know, just things to keep in mind as you go through your offering process and as you put together your offering documents. When in doubt, disclose it, right? And and the yeah. the the investor could potentially go after the individual people behind the fund personally, right? Are they they're personally liable in some cases, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. I mean to the extent there was fraud, not including an omission that may have happened just you know, as a result of somebody just not being careful or not doing proper diligence, if if the issuer actually committed fraud, then the management of that issue or the owners of that issuer could be personally liable to the investors. Right. So that's scary. And that's why it's a good reason to uh, make sure you have a really good securities attorney looking at all of these risk factors and disclosing them properly. And that's typically done through a private placement memorandum or PPM. Is that right? That's correct. You know, and that's that's why those documents will have 30 pages of risk factors in them in order to meet that anti-fraud obligation. Any conflict of interest should be disclosed. Permitting issues or problems should be disclosed. You also should have very detailed bios and track records of, of all of the, the key principles in the deal. You know, obviously, you should describe if, if it's a single asset raise, you know, for a specific parcel, uh, you know, you certainly should disclose all that you know about that particular parcel, your particular project, to really give investors the tools that they need to adequately evaluate the opportunity you're presenting to them. Good advice. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And that's why these these offering documents, these PPMs are sometimes hundreds of pages long, right? Because there needs there's a lot yeah. of disclosures that need to go into them. Yeah. And I also, I have seen this in the market. I just want to caution your audience. And, and I'll admit, I'll, I'll admit beforehand, it's somewhat self-serving advice, but there are a lot of services out there that promise a PPM at some, you know, bargain discount price. Those services frequently don't do any kind of independent due diligence. 
you know, you, you typically are sending them information about their project. They're turning that into a PPM and giving you some boilerplate risk factors, you know, that they've pre-written, you know, and they generate kind of everything at a push of a button. So while that document may have private placement memorandum on it, and, and it will certainly, you know, visually look like a private placement memo by virtue of all the boilerplate disclosure that it contains, if someone did not actually do due diligence on your specific project and work with you to maybe identify specific items that impact your project, but don't necessarily put the project in your direct, you know, in the best light, uh, then those, I'll, I'll refer to them as discounted PPMs. These discount PPMs may not actually meet the anti-fraud obligation because they contain material omissions that haven't been discovered because there was no diligence. So, you know, I think everyone has heard the adage in life, you get what you pay for. You know, you get what you pay for. So, you know, just keep that in mind when you look to analyze how you're going to ensure your compliance with securities obligations. Keep that in mind when you, uh, when you choose the entity that's going to draft a document that protects you from liability. I think that's great advice, Clem. Yeah, don't cut corners when it comes to getting that PPM drafted. It can be a substantial uh, fee, right? An upfront fee or upfront legal fee to, to get one of those drafted, depending on who you go with. Uh, but as you say, you do end up getting what you pay for. Uh, I could, couldn't have said it better myself. Clem, we've been going on for a while here, so uh, I want to I wanna wrap up the episode today. But thank you so much for coming on. I, I hope our listeners have appreciated your insight into discussing some securities laws and, and how they pertain to qualified opportunity funds and the issuing of those qualified opportunity funds and, and maybe you know what, what issuers and investors should be on the lookout for as it, as it relates to SEC matters. Before we go today, Clem, can you tell our listeners where they can go to learn more about you and CSG? Oh, I'd be happy to. You can find out uh, more about my firm at www.csglaw.com. You can search through the attorneys for my name and my bio will, uh, will pop up and you can read all about me. Uh, if you'd like to make it simple, I can, when I send you the link to the client alert, I can also send you a link to my bio. I'd be happy to do that. Perfect, yeah, we'll do that. And for our listeners out there today, I will have show notes on the Opportunity Zones database website. You can find those show notes at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. And there you'll find links to all of the resources that Clem and I discussed on today's show. Clem, thanks a lot for being with us today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Jimmy. It was, it was fun. It was a pleasure. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you liked this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by the Opportunity Database. Visit OpportunityDB.com to learn more about Opportunity Zones and Opportunity Zone Fund investing. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and read more about today's guest in the show notes by visiting OpportunityDB.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode.